Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. I'm so happy to have with us now the journalist, author, and columnist and podcast host who you may know best as the former co-host of All Things Considered, Michelle Norris. She is a Washington Post columnist these days, host of the podcast Your Mama's Kitchen, and has a new book out called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. The book is based on her years of listening to Americans of all kinds in what Michelle has called the Race Card Project. Many of you have heard Race Card Project segments on the station or know that it started with Michelle inviting anyone to submit six words, just six words, with your thoughts, experiences, or observations about race. And maybe you followed her work in the Post or elsewhere. Maybe you know the Race Card Project has won a Peabody Award, among many other accolades. Just a few examples Michelle has highlighted in the past, uh, or I should say in the Washington Post, to get your imagination going before we bring her on. Six words each. Reason I ended a sweet relationship. Too black for black men's love. Urban living has made me racist. Took 21 years to be Latina. Was considered white until after 9-11. And I'm only Asian when it's convenient. Some examples of the six-word phrases that uh, Michelle has published in the Washington Post and in the book. So let's talk. Michelle, so great to have you on. Congratulations on the book and welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. It's great to be back here with you. Is a good place to start that before the race card project, you never liked hearing people use the expression playing the race card? (laughs) I guess that's a good place to start since I named this work. uh, I use that title for the name of the work that I do. I, I, I've always hated that term. You know, it's when someone accuses you of playing the race card, they're, they're usually asking you to stop talking. It's, it's an elegant way to say, please shut up. And it also is a way to avoid what we're really trying to talk about. You know, when someone says you're playing the race card, it's not specific. It's whatever it is, it's fuzzy, and I don't want you to say it anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I used that phrase in this case because I wanted to stoke a conversation. I wanted to ignite a conversation. So, Brian, I thought I was being a little bit pithy by turning that phrase on its head. And instead of saying stop talking, I was saying let's talk. Yeah. And boy, did it work. And to remind people of the origin story of the Race Card Project a little bit, you first started this by leaving postcards in various places for people to find and perhaps fill out in return. And I thought radio is old media. What did you do <laughs> with postcards? Well, people thought I was crazy when I first printed out the postcards. Um, I went to a Kinko's in Washington, D.C., and uh, the, my partner at the Race Card Project, Melissa Bear, who's we still work together on this, she designed them with the the phrase on the front just said, race your thoughts, six words, please send. My parents were postal workers. My father's gone to glory, but my mother is still with us, and we'll be listening to this later. And so maybe it was my way to pay homage to them to support the U.S. Postal Service when everyone else was moving on to snail mail. But it just seemed like something tactile. 
you know, and and so I left them, as you say, in in the sugar station at the Starbucks, in the back of the airline seat, you know, where they have the little airline magazine and the sickness bag. I'd leave cards uh-huh. there. Yeah. Uh, I left them on seats whenever I was at book festivals or book talks. And much to my surprise, people filled them out. They went and found a postage stamp. They mailed them to me. Now, most of the submissions come in digitally today because we have a website and the digital form is useful because when they fill out that form, we have an, a, a place for them also to give us the backstory behind their six words. Yeah. So we understand a little bit more about why they've chosen those six words. But I still love the postcards. Huh. And we'll get into some of what you get on the website now that people can leave six words but then also expand on them and then also interact with each other. But but I want to admit something. I want to admit a prediction that I would have had about your respondents um, that you say turned out not to be true. My prediction would have been that the people participating at all would tend to be people of color because people of color get their race thrown in their face all the time, and mostly white America, I say this as a white person, in explicit or subtle ways, so they feel in touch with and interested in talking about their experiences with race. White people in general have the luxury, I would put it, of living as the majority, and frankly have much less interest in talking about race, which they see as either unsettling or somehow hostile, like that phrase, playing the race card. But I think your experience tells me my prediction would have been wrong. Well, it was my prediction, too. So you say that your prediction as a white man, my prediction as a woman of color, as a black woman, is that uh, as an African-American, I put the basket on the table, and I thought that people of color would be the ones to fill it up. And in the 14 years that I've been doing this work, for almost all of those years, the majority of the submissions have come from white Americans, which tells me that it's not necessarily that they don't think about race or that they don't want to participate in conversations about race, which we should be honest are usually by, for, or about people of color. It tells me that a lot of people have bystander status. And in some cases, they've chosen that. Ooh, I don't want to talk about that. It's dangerous. It's a minefield. But in some cases, they have bystander status, and they're looking at the action and wondering when they can get in and when they can have their say. And this experience tells me that a, that a lot of people actually do have something to say and and are looking for a safe space to say it. And we should say that the people who have submitted their stories who are white represent a full spectrum of views and perspectives. I was surprised by the number of white respondents. I was surprised by how many of them identify as conservative, identify as people who don't necessarily even want to talk. They'll say, I'm tired of this. I don't want to talk about these things. Why are we talking about race? And they're talking about race. Um, There are some of the same people who would probably be in the camp of people who are fighting against so-called CRT, who are saying, why are we teaching this history to our children? And yet they pulled up to the table with their story. their six words and often a backstory. And so as a journalist, that has been really useful to me because in most circumstances when we're having a conversation about race, we are usually talking about or talking to people of color. This is the first time that I have participated in an, uh, an exercise in a vertical about race or identity that had so much buy-in from white America, which makes it easier for me to see a fuller America because mm-hmm. of it. And along those lines, 
I'll give you my six words. I thought if I'm having you on and I know what you do, um, I should participate. And maybe what you just said refutes this a little bit too. But um, my six words, and again, in the context of me being white, white male, white privilege, so comfortable, becomes invisible. Hmm. White privilege, so comfortable, becomes invisible. Can Why? we work because backwards? I was, I'm sorry, I know you're asking the questions, but I can't help no, but go. Yeah, ask you, do you this about for a this. Living too. <laughs> <laughs> so if we worked backwards, tell me about the being invisible part. Well, I, th- I think that's one of the biggest barriers to equality and coming up with policies that really push equality. People in the majority often don't naturally see themselves as having a particular identity at all and can say they just see people as people. So for many white people, we have to become awakened. I guess I shouldn't say woke, so I'll say awakened to the reality of different experiences of race in this country. And I think it has big implications that feed into policy arguments about race-based remedies like affirmative action for centuries of race-based deprivations. It's that white privilege so comfortable becomes invisible. So a lot of white people think, why does it have to inform policy in a specific way? Why does race? I'm curious for your reaction and if anything like that has come up a lot. Well, I'm, I'm going to focus on the word privilege because I've learned a lot about this word, word listening to people and particularly um, white Americans because people talk about privilege in other parts of the, the world. We should note that we've received submissions from more than 100 countries now. Wow. But the, the language of um, bias is a little bit different in other places. But in America, when you talk about privilege, there are a lot of people who feel um, offended or ostracized by that conversation because they're like, what, what, uh, how am I privileged? You know, I'm a working class person. I have to figure out at the end of the month whether I'm going to buy new shoes for my daughter or put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be able to buy medicine or make the mortgage? And I'm privileged. So that word privileged is is very loaded for people. And one of the things that we learned, it's called, the project is called the Race Card Project, but the subtitle of the book is Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Think About Race and Identity. And I started talking about race and identity for for a reason, because I realized when I widened the aperture a little bit and started talking about race and identity, more people came into the tent. Mm -hmm. I have been in places where we're doing workshops or I'm doing a talk and people stand up and they will say, you know, I am someone who came from poverty. I am someone who is struggling in some way. Sometimes it's financially, sometimes it's emotionally, sometimes it's because of a disability or a different kind of ableism, and they feel like they're not seen, and they're not included, and there's no program for them. There's no understanding for them. There's no embrace of their issues in the way that perhaps there is for they perceive this, um, this kind of embrace or interest in helping people of color feel more included, uh, create a sense of belonging for them. And, and so when I talk about identity, suddenly people feel like, okay, I don't necessarily see myself as raced, you know, the, mm-hmm. in the way that Toni Morrison talked about it, you know, the, yep. the way that you are, it's laid upon you um, in, in the way that people of color do. But when you talk about identity, then people are, I'm Southern. Um, I'm an athlete. I'm tall. I'm 
um, I'm older and I work in tech and I feel out of sorts because the world is passing me by. Um, everyone is wearing their watches, talking about how many triathlons they've done and how many steps they've logged. And, you know, and I'm at the end of my career, and this is a very uncomfortable place for me to be. So when we started talking about identity, just we, we just started to see cards coming in, submissions coming in from lots of different people. The other group for whom that was very important um, were Latinos. Because when we were talking about mm-hmm. race, um, there, you know, that didn't necessarily apply to a lot of people because they felt that the door that they would walk through had more to do with culture, had more to do with ethnicity, had more to do with geography. So the other, you know, one of the many lessons I've taken from this mm-hmm. is that the language that we use, the vernacular of our conversations about race as we understand it is probably too pinched. It's too narrow. And we maybe need to think about um, ways to expand that. So more people are included and maybe we can have more, have conversations that are fuller and a bit more productive. So listeners, we can do a few things with you on the phone with Michelle Norris. Um, We can take your six words with your observations, thoughts, or experiences of race, informal submissions to Michelle Norris's Race Card Project. We could call them and yes, go to her website and um, submit them for real if you want, but your six words, and I know I'm asking you to do something that I didn't give you a heads up about in advance. So <laughs> an assignment. <laughs> if you can um, pen them right now, uh, a little little you know pop quiz. It's not a quiz. It's just a, you know, and it's an invitation, uh, postcard size invitation. Your six words with your observations, thoughts, or experiences of race, uh, or you can ask. Michelle Norris, any other question about the Race Card Project or anything else you want to say or ask about that or her book, which is called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. So call or text us, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692 for Michelle Norris, who you know from the Race Card Project, maybe who you certainly have known as an all-things-considered host um, on the station and elsewhere around the country on NPR. And while calls are coming in, Michelle, I wonder if you would tell the story that you include of the exchange that started on the site around someone's six-word post that read, we aren't all strong black women. Would you tell that story a little bit? Yes, that came from Celeste. Um, Dr. Celeste Green. She's, we call her one of our race card project kids because she was in college when she submitted her story and was feeling a lot of pressure for a lot of different reasons and sent in those six words because she felt that she was not allowed to be vulnerable, that as a black woman there was an expectation that she could shoulder the world's problems and that she would soldier on in doing so. She um, is now a doctor, and she applied to law school the first time, uh, didn't get in the first time, got in the second time. And in her application, she wrote an essay about her experience sending those six words into the world because what happened is all these other – it was on social media and creating a project like this at a moment where you know Twitter and Facebook and everything came came into our lives, you know, allowed this to percolate in interesting ways. And all these people from all over the country, including a few from overseas – we're all debating those six words. You know, wait, I thought that was a compliment. 
I'm always telling, you know, you go girl, you, you black women just, they have something about them that they just have a, a stronger spine about them. And, and other black women were saying, oh, wait a minute, we get hurt too. We need to, you know, put our burdens down too. When you say this, it makes us sound like weeds instead of flowers. Like you can throw anything at us and we will survive. And she's now, Celeste is now a doctor. She is a practicing OBGYN. Uh-huh. And she says that this is something that is still evident in the work that she does, noticing in her practice and realizing from a plethora of studies that have been done that black woman's pain is not always recognized in the same way. They are less likely to get painkillers. They're less likely to be tended to when, um, when they note that something might be going wrong. And that's why we see the kind of maternal mortality rates that we see and the, the difference in the maternal mortality rates among women of color. And so she tries to bring this wisdom and to keep having these kind of conversations in her medical practice and at the same time recognizing that as a doctor, as a mother, um, as a, you know, the centerpiece of her family, she's now married and has a young son, that she is also trying to figure out how to find balance and still realizing that there is this sort of expectation that's wrapped up in a compliment that winds up feeling like a cement, you know, instead of pearls, it feels a little bit like a cement necklace. You must yeah. always be strong. Yeah. You must always, you know, soldier on. And sometimes, you know, that, that, you know that saying, black don't crack? Well, yeah. it can sometimes crumble, and and people feel like they always have to strut out into the world and be fabulous and be strong, and and you know, and you can't always right. bring that every day. Yeah, and some of the specific responses that you published in the uh, Washington Post essay that you did that's adapted from the book um, um, isn't strong black when, when people objected for the reasons you were just articulating. Isn't strong black woman a compliment? Response, no, it's strong like oxen, less than human. Like saying it doesn't matter how we treat them because they will survive. Time to stop putting up walls and be vulnerable. But then a response, wasn't the whole feminist movement about being strong? What gives? But then more responses, I feel like I'm forced to be strong. And it makes me sound like a weed, not a flower. And I read through those because it's just such a wonderful example of how you've started conversations on the site, not just declarations. And and we need so much more of that. I love that, conversations and not just declarations. Because so often when we talk about race and identity, it's a conversation that's centered around anthems mm. and what people are saying as opposed to what they're hearing. And I hope that this project gives people a space to actually listen to someone else and understand life is lived by, you know, someone in another zip code, in another realm, with another point of view. Oh, that's so public radio of you. Um, <laughs> Michelle Norris, former ATC host. Uh, we're going to continue in a minute. And are you surprised that so many people are writing in and calling in with their six-word um, phrases about their experiences or observations about race with almost no notice. So we're going to continue with Michelle Norris after a break. Her new book on all of this is called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. And um, at the end of the conversation, we're going to do a little bit of addendum of an addendum because of the Emmys last night. And I think, Michelle, you know this is going to come. Um, <laughs> Michelle last year wrote a column in the Washington Post critical of, I guess, the, the biggest winning show 
last night, <laughs> and we will find out why. Stay with us. Brian Miller on WNYC with Michelle Norris and her new book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity, built out of the Race Card Project, a Peabody Award-winning project that you've probably heard segments about on NPR and that she's been doing on the Race Card Project website, starting with inviting people six words on their experiences, observations, or thoughts about race. And let's hear some. Nate on the Lower East Side, you're on WNYC. Hi. Oh, I didn't expect to get through so quickly. Normally I'm alerted to it. Uh, My six words, I became black in New York. You want to expand a little bit? I do. I was waiting to see whether you wanted us to or not. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, back in the uh, late late 60s, early 70s, I lived in upstate New York uh, in the Poughkeepsie area. I was cutting across a lawn uh, of a neighbor, and kids don't know boundaries. And uh, the neighbor's kid yells out, hey, black boy. And I look at him, and I'm, ups- I'm upset initially, thinking, why is he calling me black? It wasn't about being a boy because I was young. I was a boy. But the thing that really got me was being called black because at the time, colored was much more common in the area that I was in. Hmm. I was, and I shouted back and I said, I'm colored. I'm not black. He oh. said, haven't you heard? You're black now. Black is beautiful. And it, later on, yes, it's interesting. Nate, I'm going to leave it there so we can get a lot of people on, but that's a really interesting story. We'll give Michelle a, uh, Michelle a chance to comment on it as we go, but let's hear a few. Gardner in Upper Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hello, Gardner. Hello, Brian. Michelle. Hey, yeah. Six words. So uh, uh, minorities are often afraid of me. Are you turning a stereotype on its head? Sort of. I was canvassing for a politician in Patterson, New Jersey, and I was knocking on doors, and people did not want to answer the door because I was white, and somebody told me that I knocked like a policeman or a landlord. And I never realized that people were afraid of me because I was white. Very interesting. All right, we're going to go on. Um, I'm going to let Mary Ellen in Westchester speak for a few people who are calling or writing in with a similar six-word observation. Mary Ellen, you're on WNYC. Hi. Good morning. Hi, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, um, Brian, this actually goes back to, I guess, something that I have felt pretty much my whole life, or most of my adult life anyway, um, but that crystallized for me just about a year ago when you had your program, in fact, almost to the day, um, your guests on your um, MLK day last year. And uh, there was a discussion of, you know, whether, you know, I think particularly with your the rabbi who was on, who talked about uh, whether or not he considered himself white. And to me, sort of an epiphany was that if you're Jewish, um, you're not really white. My six words that I said to your screener was Jewish. Now, if I, I didn't write them down, I should have, because now I don't know if I can get down to I've got six. it. I've got it um, from you if you want me to cite it, but you could do it. Please. 
Jewish, you only think you're white. Exactly. And um, I'm guessing you grew up among a fair amount of Jews. Um, yes. I think in, in Bayside. In fact, you yes. may have overlapped in high school with one of my cousins. Okay. Um, I grew up just a little bit further east on Long Island, Hempstead Uniondale area. And I was the only Jew in my class until seventh grade. And it gave me a different perspective that I don't think I fully appreciated until adulthood. That, that you're, like, and frankly, it's something that as Jews we need to be aware of. Um, that the, the, the word white in the United States really means Christian. It really means Christian. That is the, the sort of the silent implication, but a very profound meaning of white. And Mary Ellen, I'm going to leave it there so we can get more people on, but I hear and I acknowledge that a number of people have written or called in with similar sentiments, and certainly we could have a whole conversation about um, being white and Jewish in New York compared to a lot of other places in the country. There's an aspect of this in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, that has perceptions on both sides. So, so I hear it. Maybe we'll bring it up tomorrow with our guest, the prominent rabbi and author, Rabbi Sharon Browse, who's going to be a guest tomorrow. And among other things, she's going to talk about anti-Semitism in the United States and how it's been getting expressed um, before and after October 7th. Uh, but there's all of that. Let's get one or two more in here. Susan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Susan. You have six words. Yes. um, Racism means isolation from the other, which kind of sums up a lot of what the callers have said. And I'm just going to quickly, because I know time is of the essence. Um, In elementary, no, junior high school, um, it was mostly a white school. There were a few blacks bust in. And I was in the band class. And that exposed me to black kids, and my best friend became, um, who was a young, um, <clears throat> young black boy, he, he, he became my best friend um, in, in junior high school. Um, and then later on, I was uh, in a training program. I was the instructor. I was the only white. Um, my, my students, who were considered, quote-unquote, educationally disadvantaged, and that's why they were in the training program, and this was in advertising. The um, director and the assistant director were African-American, and I had to learn. Everything was reversed. I had to learn how to communicate, and um, I I was hazed. I was given a really hard time. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot in that experience. Susan, thank you so, so much. And finally, a few that are coming in on text message. Um, Listener writes, race is a uniquely American construct. Listener writes, biracial, not really enough of either. Listener writes, they're going by so fast, I can barely keep up with these. (laughs) Um, Um... Person with an accent considered inferior. And another one, I'm exhausted of being the other. 
So uh, there you go, Michelle. A lot of submissions over the last uh, seven minutes or so. Do you want to enter through any of them or just kind of the group? Sure, but can we just say how much people can pack into just six words? Every, you know, I hope people who do buy the book will leave it out in places where others will find it and that it will be a conversation starter because the book includes my essays but also these six-word stories and they, they do ignite conversation. They, they make you think about things. I mean, um, when Susan was talking uh, uh, about um, racism is isolation from the other. It makes me think of Brian Stevenson's work where he talks about proximity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons that they created these divisions and they wanted to keep kids away from each other, they didn't want them to dance together, date together, even go to school together, is because I think people knew that once you saw someone, you got to know them, you see their humanity. It's what Michelle Obama says, it's hard to hate up close. Um, but you also understand in a reverse situation when suddenly you're the minority. That is an epiphany as well. Um, in the uh, story, I want to make sure I get the names right here. I took a little notes, if you don't mind. In talking about uh, Mary Ellen, um, talking about Jewish, you only think you're white. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about how whiteness has been, it's, it's fairly elastic over time, right? It's meant different things at different periods of time. So you talked the with her about being Jewish in New York City. If you were Italian in New York City at one point, if you were from um, Eastern Europe, if you were Slavic, if you were Irish in New York City at one point, or really almost anywhere in America, you would have been considered white with an asterisk. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of these things are legislated by individuals, some of it legislated by the government. If you were from the Middle East, if you were Lebanese, the box that you check on the census is often white because the decision was made, and there's a real debate now about whether we should have a MENA category, Middle East or North African, because of these these constructs. Um, someone else said race is an American construct. I would push back against that a little bit since we've heard from people all over the world. They might not call it race, but people figure out how to divide themselves in all kinds of ways. Mountain people versus valley people, always around a religion, often around hue, the color of someone's skin around money, around access to water, around all kinds of things. And that's one of the other big lessons for me is that we keep talking about race as something that will one day go away, racism, bias go away. I actually think it just mutates and we have to figure out how to um, create tethers with each other, uh, even you know, as bias changes over time. Um, Gardner, who said minorities are often afraid of me, because he knocks like a police officer or a landlord. Yeah. Um, I would love to put him in conversation with any number of black or brown people who have submitted their six-word stories who say things like, lady, I don't want your purse. Yeah. Because they walk down the street and someone's always grabbing their purse a little bit closer um, or going through a neighborhood and trying to hit that lock on the door, you know, because they see some kids standing on a corner. And these are people of color who feel like everywhere they go, they have to inoculate other people's fears. I wonder if he feels that way. It's why I said to him, or asked him if he thought his story was a bit of a role reversal. Yeah, yeah. Um, to wrap this up, and then we'll do the the Emmy Award uh, <laughs> addendum. You, uh, what's the goal of the project? Is it simply to have a place where many people can write and interact about race? 
or are you trying to help actually get us to a more equal and maybe less uncomfortable country in this respect? I was struck by the fact that you also wrote about your dad, whose patriotism toward a country that didn't love him back, you didn't always understand. And I also got a sense that that you've become maybe a little less optimistic and more disillusioned yourself over time, even while doing this incredibly idealistic thing. So what's the goal? Well, first let me address the the thing about my dad. Um, He was extremely patriotic. Flags flying in front of the house, little flags in his rose garden. And I didn't understand it. And I have become very patriotic in my own way. I think there's a lot of flag waving that's done in the country as a way to, um, again, gatekeeping. This is our country and not yours. And I believe that everybody who is a citizen of this country should embrace the flag um, and claim it as theirs. Our, Our pride and our plunder is in that flag, too. My father fought for this country. Um, my forebears helped build this country. And so I am not going to concede my claim to this country. So I become mm-hmm. um, ever more patriotic in doing this work as I understand America even more better, even with its flaws and even with its fissures. Um, I am <laughs> I'm also more pragmatic, not necessarily pessimistic. And I'm not you know, the race car project will not solve America's problems, but it will help you understand the wound. It will help you understand the divisions if you have a chance to listen to each other. And so, yes, I'm trying to create a place for people to listen to each other, but not necessarily to make us more comfortable, because I think we have to learn how to sit in our discomfort. And I think if we're willing to sit in our discomfort, then we can figure out how to work together productively when we don't always agree. And that's perhaps a short-term goal. The long-term goal is something that I started to realize about, you know, seven years ago when, when the numbers really started to pile up in terms of the numbers of submissions we received, is I hope that years from now that storytellers like us, journalists like us, and also anthropologists, sociologists, historians will be able to look at this archive and understand America during this really interesting period bookended by the presidencies of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, followed by Joe Biden, followed by a global pandemic, followed by the killing of George Floyd, followed by uh, ruptures at the border, followed by climate change and economic tumult. And January 6th. 6th, Let's not forget about that. And understand America, not through the prism of historians, but from real source material, from people saying this is the way I see the world. This is the way the world sees me. This has been my experience. What I wouldn't, what I would give to have something like that when I was doing research on the 1920s, on the 1940s, to be able to understand America in that way. So I hope that long after I'm gone that this will perhaps be useful to someone in the future who's trying to understand the now. All right. As an addendum to our central conversation about your book today, I want to note the Emmy Awards last night where Succession was, of course, one of the big winners and that you wrote a Washington Post column last year called Succession Dulled America to the Poison Seeping into Their Lives. And so for for those of us, and I guess I would have included myself, who might have <laughs> thought it was helping to illuminate the poison seeping into our lives by showing a fictionalized version of this, you know, top 1% family and Rupert Murdoch and family in particular, who it's supposed to be based on in such a damning light. 
Want to make your case in about 30 seconds because we're over our time. Okay. I, I just, I think it pointed out um, all the things that are, are un- helping to unravel the country. It was a bit to me, I mean, I, and I did watch it and I give them credit. Um, they they created something that captured the nation's attention and the zeitgeist. But it's a bit like watching a, a house fire on a v- screen when the embers are burning on the sofa that you're sitting in. And that's sort of the way it, 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 it felt to me. I have, and I said it in the column, mm-hmm. I have respect for the writers. Yep. I just have a love of country that made me worried about what they were predicting, what they were projecting on screen. And it was projecting something that um, was all too real for me to see it as entertainment. And I'm going to play one clip of the actor Matthew McFadden, who won an Emmy last night and a Golden Globe the other week for his portrayal of the character Tom. Here who he who won from, it all in the end, you know. Yeah, yeah who became the CEO, right? Yeah. And so here he is from his Golden Globes acceptance speech, skewering that character who won the prize. I, uh, I just adored every second playing um, the weird and wonderful human grease stain that is Tom Wamsgan. <laughs> um, Tom Wamsgan's CEO, I should say. Uh, God help us. And you know why I played that? Because I think maybe for some listeners who heard the character Tom speak American English in the series perfectly, and then the real-life actor in his actual British voice, and you noted in your column the relevance, perhaps, of Succession being mostly a British Mm -hmm. production. Give us just a a, a quick thought on why you think that might have mattered. I think they were holding a mirror up to us. And we thought we were watching the one percenters, but we were really watching ourselves and how we've allowed this to happen in our country and how we've allowed this to exist. The game was on us. The joke was on us. And we leave it there with Michelle Norris. Her new book is Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Thank you for sharing it so generously with us. I always love talking to you. Thanks so much. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Stay with us.